Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. If you are a new listener, this is a show presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business, specialising in technology and entrepreneurship. This is the first episode of our third series, and we are back stronger than ever with more amazing entrepreneurial stories from right across the United Kingdom. Today, I'm joined by Ben Francis and Noel Mack, the founder and chief brand officer of Gymshark. When I was in 10 Downing Street, one of the best parts of my job was scouting out the next exciting wave of entrepreneurs that should meet the Prime Minister and that we should help develop on their journey. So it would always be a question I would ask some of the more established entrepreneurs that I spoke with. Who did they think were the next big thing? Who should we be aware of? Stuart Mark said to me in 2016, you have got to have a look at this guy called Ben Francis. I did, and I was impressed. So when we were creating the PM's Scale-Up and Entrepreneurship Advisory Council, I was keen for Ben to be involved. Before these councils would meet, we would sit down with the Prime Minister and have a 15-minute briefing through the cast list of characters, the different personalities, and what they would be likely to raise. In this briefing, when we got to Ben's name, someone said, Ah yes, Prime Minister, one of Jimmy's wild cards. Ben Francis, a pizza delivery boy who prints t-shirts. The PM raised an eyebrow in my direction, but said no more. Meeting a Prime Minister can do funny things to an individual. They can jumble their lines, it can make them speak uncontrollably fast, or they can forget them altogether. I had seen business leaders with more experience and pedigree than a 26-year-old from Solihull crumble. When it came to Ben's turn to talk, he started confidently by telling us the story of Gymshark to date. I could relax. The wild card was working out fine. Then, in the next three minutes, was one of the most impressive performances I have ever seen in front of the PM. Ben went on to not only set out his vision for Gymshark, but the future of the entire fitness industry. He finished by saying how he believed that Gymshark could become to the UK what Adidas had become to Germany and what Nike had become to the United States. He wanted to create a global brand which embodies the strength and cultural identity of the UK and he was going to do this all from Birmingham in the West Midlands. It was a truly extraordinary performance from a 26-year-old. The likes of James Timpson, John Roberts and Brent Hobeman would bristle at me saying that the entrepreneurial torch was passing to a new generation, but it was certainly clear they had a new one joining their ranks. Since then, Gymshark has gone from strength to strength, taking investment from General Atlantic, valuing the company at over a billion pounds. They employ over 800 people and have plans to expand further. The really exciting part of the Gymshark story is that we are just at the start of it. There is much more to come, of which Ben gives us an outline today. Talking us through the different jobs that Gymshark are creating, from influencers to influencer marketing managers, to product and data roles. Ben and Noel would be the first to admit that traditional schooling and academia did not really suit their strengths and neither left school with great results. But that does not stop you becoming a success as we talk about today. But before we get into it, a big thank you to our series partners, 
Octopus. Octopus was founded in 2000 by Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, who sat in a living room using the yellow pages to get their first clients. They now have over 9 billion under management and employ over 750 people with a mission to invest in the people, the ideas and industries that will help change the world. Many companies like to say they back entrepreneurs, but Octopus really put their money where their mouth is. And throughout this series, we'll be hearing more about where they are backing the next generation of great entrepreneurs. Ben, Noel, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks, Jim. Thank you very much for having us. What were your <coughs> reflections on that day of coming to Downing Street, Ben? Um, to, I'm going to be honest, that that was one of the most, personally, it was one of the most memorable moments of my entire life because it's the sort of thing that you see on the telly a lot. And as a kid, especially growing up in the West Midlands, it's just sort of unfathomable. It's not something that you ever think would happen. Um, and honestly, so the most memorable thing was I was, I was proper nervous for it. And I can't remember what time the meeting was. I think it was like 11 o'clock or something. And I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't late or anything like that. So I stayed over the night before and I walked down from, I think it was like the Hilton in Westminster or somewhere like that. And I walked down to Downing Street and you walk past the Houses of Parliament on the right hand side. And that was like probably what, probably the most memorable walk of my life. And then they sort of open up the big uh, sort of iron gates, don't they? And you walk up and it's weird because one minute it feels like you're in central London. It's busy and there's cameras and there's people everywhere. And you go through the security hut and it's like, you, it's it's just almost like tranquil. And it was a really weird feeling and walking in through the front door. And um, it was actually really funny because I was quite nervous and there was very serious looking security guys on the entrance as you come through the door. And one guy sort of nodded to me and then he sort of looked away and he looked back at me and he went, Ben, Gymshark. And he was basically a Gymshark fan, the security guy on the inside. <laughs> and then we just started chatting away. And then from then it was just, I sort of, I wasn't nervous at all, super excited. Uh, you know, I'm a massive fan of, I guess, the UK and its history. So I was just looking around thinking, oh my God, Churchill once walked through this door. He might have sat in that chair. This has been at the center of, I guess, everything that's been going on in the country for so long. It, yeah, it was one of the most memorable moments and days of my life. And did you feel a sense of, I mean, you say nervousness in meeting the Prime Minister, but mm. from my side of those meetings, you know, you've got some really big, impressive entrepreneurs that mm. are household names in their own right what was it like interacting with them had you seen many of them before um i'd seen a few of them on the telly but i'd never really spoken to them i had never spoken to them i felt a bit awkward when i was going in because you get like you before you go into the meeting there's like a, a big almost drawing room where people sort of chat amongst each other and it, i felt i it was quite obvious that i was the one that didn't really know anyone there and i was chatting to yourself i chatted to james timpson who was a lovely guy and he gave me some pieces of advice i spoke to bren everyone was really welcoming to be honest it was just a completely surreal experience there's something that, that someone said to me a long time ago which was try and learn something from everyone that you meet and the second i walked in the door i was like right i just want to learn from as many people as i possibly can here and yeah i definitely took a lot away from it and you um you posted it on your instagram and mm -hmm. there were lots of comments from people saying how you should be prime minister and um noel this was my first interaction with with you was that you uh, responded on there saying if ben's going to be prime minister i want to be the minister of instagram for funny comments <laughs> <laughs> which i did I think know. was quite <laughs> mate this guy's on his research right? this is a great <laughs> podcast oh yeah i didn't see that and so can you tell us a bit i mean ben has talked about his story in the press a lot and it is incredible can you explain a bit about well a how you guys met but b what the role of a chief brand officer is 
it's such a kind of iconic brand. Yeah, cool. Um, first, I want to go back to the, the Downing Street thing for a sec. That morning, he sent me a picture and I said, please tell me you haven't worn that same Ben outfit you wear every day. And it, like, it was though with him, he hadn't registered. He was like, what, what do you mean? And I was like, have you got dressed up to go to Downing Street? And he's like, no, why? And it was like, for me, I'd be, you know, I'd be at the tailors beforehand. I'd be resting new saying, what do you wear? All this stuff. The fact that he turned up with his socks tucked, still tucked into his trousers blew me away. And I went to my nan's house that day. And when I arrived, she was on the phone to her friend. And she was going, yeah, and he's still wearing that same outfit, you know? <laughs> but I, was, I just thought, you know, this is why Ben maybe held the job of chief brand officer at one point because he got Gymshark across his chest. Yeah, and man. so he was able to get those I paid him to wear that. No, <laughs> yeah. We met because I'd uh, started a creative agency, someone that worked for Gymshark in the very early days. My first experience with Gymshark was, you know, you're here today wandering around this big, beautiful building and fancy podcast studio and all that kind of stuff. The first time I went up and met the guys when one of their uh, staff members reached out to me, Gymshark headquarters was a porter cabin in a car park of the warehouse where they kept the where we kept the stock. So that was where I first met the guys and then yeah, did a little bit of work for them like consultancy basis, whatever else for a couple of years. And then um yeah, got to the point where Ben said you should bring in what you do in house and, and do it here. And when I and it, there was there was no there was no chief brand officer job job role at the time. There was um I came on as creative director uh, with three members of staff and then I absorbed another team which was the brand department and then we, we went from like a director type UK type structure didn't we to like an mm. American one with the C-suite titles and all that mm. kind of stuff and Ben became chief brand officer so then I built the brand team up over time which is doing social media it's doing influencers it's PR it's creative it's now you know some digital product stuff and then and customer service and events and stuff like that um, and then it, 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 it got to a day where I thought to myself I think I'm better than Ben at his own job now I think I should be the chief brand officer so I sat down with him and I said it was a really funny meeting I was crapping myself and i said to him um i was like you know if you and me i said you know if the chief brand officer job was up for like a, a job ad and he was like yeah and i said and we both turned up with our cvs and he went yeah i said who do you think could get it and he sort of he sort of stared at me knowing exactly what i was up to and sort of smiled and went probably you and i was like yeah i think so as well and he was like all right leave it with me and then like a week later he went okay you can have yeah you can have my job so i became a chief brand officer and then you i was made redundant yeah <laughs> Well, you were in between things after that yeah, for a while, weren't you? He was in between jobs for a while after that. But yeah, no, so yeah, today it's it's exciting the consumers, it's growing the brand in the right way. I think that's something that we've been something we've been really good at is getting our brand in front of people, but for the right reasons. You know, we were just talking about the fact that in the last year in the UK, Jim Shark's become so much more salient because I think we operated under the radar for a long time, which is probably why that day at Downing Street, not many people knew who Ben w was, right? When, when you think back to when we were traveling, doing events, we were sort of stopped in gyms and talked to more in Los Angeles than we would be in Birmingham. We'd mm -hmm. go to LA and you couldn't train probably. People go, oh, I love what you guys are doing because again, we're on the internet. Whereas we come back to some grotty gym in Birmingham and nobody knew who any of us were or what we were up to or whatever. So we operated under the radar. But yeah, lately in the UK, obviously we've gone on to huge brand awareness, top of mind sort of relevancy when you ask about fitness brands but the important thing is that we've done up in the right way it's not because we've it's not because we've put billboards all up and down the M40 or you know yeah. we've, we've sponsored Man United or anything like that it's because of how, how we're you know contributing to the economy in the UK after the GA deal it's because of the fundraising that we did for the NHS during COVID right it's the fact that we didn't furlough one member of staff even though you know the government were bending over to help people with that we thought well we can't be doing as well as we are and then and then you know using taxpayers money to, to, to keep people on so we didn't furlough a single member of staff um you know, contributions to Daniel Bramall, the, the the Team GB long jumper who was his funding was cut and all that kind mm. of stuff. So grow the brand, but grow it in the right way and get in front of people with our sort of, you know, our values on display for the world to see. I'd say it's probably the, the, the abridged version of, you know, what my job is. And in terms of when it comes to jobs of the future, you set out that vision of competing with Adidas and Nike. And it's been so interesting through the pandemic kind of observing the e-commerce market in the mm. sense of 
they are now trying to do what you guys set out <clears throat> to do 10 years ago in terms of the direct to consumer play so for listeners that's the only place that you can buy Gymshark stuff is through the Gymshark website as far mm-hmm. as I'm aware yeah. now all these Nike and Adidas are multi-channel methods I was reading yesterday that Nike have 6,000 stores in China alone mm-hmm. and they are trying to bring that all back because it's so much more of an efficient way and you get hold of so much more data as well which is which is valuable what is your vision for the next five <clears throat> years you know when you look at the careers that you, on your careers page on Gymshark there's lots of very different roles there you know you're hiring for a chief data scientist and so mm-hmm. on where do you see the future of fitness going in that regard so I just want to start off by saying as well like we don't compare ourselves to those larger brands I think from the outset they can look similar but there's there's a few key differences. One, the brands you just mentioned are sports brands. We're all around fitness and conditioning. And there's a there's a huge distinction there because you're talking about getting someone to play football on the pitch versus whether it's weightlifting, powerlifting, running, you know, sort of more gym-focused activities and conditioning-focused activities. And then if you look under the hood of those businesses, like a Gymshark versus one of those guys, we're built in a completely different way. And again, from the outside looking in, it, it can seem similar, similar, but anyone that walks around our office or looks at the way that we're built and work, it's fundamentally different. So, I'm, I mean, we've got long-term visions um, and we've sort of stuck a, a yardstick in the ground as to where we think that's going to go. I won't tell you the long, long-term vision, but in the next few years, we... And we made this decision, by the way, a fair few years ago, and we all sat sat, round, sat down around a table and we said the future of brands in general, not just in fitness, will be community-focused, direct-to-consumer, agile brands. And that was really powerful because we thought really carefully about that and we thought about all the reasons why we think that's going to be true. And then we said, right, we're now going to direct all of our energy to becoming one of those brands. Again, fortunately, we were built sort of from the outset in that way. Now, what that does is when opportunities come along, so large retailers come in and they ask to buy a load of stock, which could comfortably double revenue very quickly and we could have grown a lot more quickly than what we have. We look at that and we go, does this speak back to agile, direct-to-consumer, community-focused brand? And stocking our product in a large chain of stores doesn't speak back to that so obviously we say no so that's that's the fundamental basis that we see from a brand perspective and to your point some of the larger brands are now doing a little bit of a u-turn to try and build themselves in a way that's more like that now we think that's really powerful we're built like that now but we're also looking at the longer term future and being also thoughtful about the fact that our business model is brilliant now and it works but equally, I think you'll look back in 10 years and you'll say that wasn't quite finished. There's still a lot, a lot of development to do. And that's what we're currently thinking about. So, yeah, we think the future of brands will be those three things. And again, if you look at the the youth of today, sort of my generation and, and younger, they really want to be a part of a community. They want to be a part of something that's larger than themselves. And they want to be a part of something that speaks to their core values. And I really think Gymshark does that. When it comes to the changing face of retail and so on, you do on occasions do pop up stores and so on which mm-hmm. are incredibly successful and drive a huge amount of demand is that how you see the sort of future of the high street um i mean we've got we've got thoughts on the future of offline and we're definitely going to be adapting and evolving our strategy around that you know I've, I've spoken publicly about some of my favorite shops in the past i think apple clearly do a great job i'm a massive fan of there's a place in um in london called the bike shed which is anyone that's into motorcycles will know all about it and it's an amazing community hub i think it's going more that way like it, listen if you want to buy a product especially in this country given the uh, the infrastructure we've got it's so much easier just to pop online and buy it like so many places do same day next day delivery so i think it's going to be a lot more experiential rather than than what it is now you talk about community being one of the key aspects of what you are mm-hmm. you know, what your brand focuses on you know, you started this in your teenage years early 20s mm-hmm. and it was targeted at that market and mm-hmm. 
know, now these people are getting older as like as it goes through. And how is that community changing, do you think, and their priorities for it? And how has that been impacted by the pandemic as well? I think the community sort of slowly grow. We're sort of growing older with our community. Um, the way we don't really think like sort of, you know, say 18 to 24. And then once you become 25, you drop out of our sort of, you know, target mm. age for community. We We sort of invented this term we call the social native right you've heard you've heard people refer to the digital native before which is that mark prinsky thing but that's a little bit too old for us that's like 1918 grew up with computers the generation that we sort of started with grew up with social media so it's not that once they get a mortgage and a roof rack on their volvo and two kids they go right you're not in anymore do you know what i mean that was the generation we start with and we'll grow older with them so right now the guys that are dancing on tiktok at some point they'll be 50 years old but jim shark will still be the trusted brand they knew from when they were younger and they'll still trust it at that age and we'll grow older with them so our our sort of target market and our community we're slowly getting older with them but we're always onboarding you know younger generations through the bottom as well with a with the second biggest fitness brand on tiktok right like the report came out the other week to say that no surprise nike's number one with 9.3 billion tagged posts on tiktok and gymshark's number two with three billion now after behind us you've got adidas reebok peloton lululemon right some of these huge fitness brands but with that younger generation because let's face it that's what tiktok is made up of mm. gymshark was number two on that list as one of the most relevant brands so we're like I said, growing older with them, but also constantly onboarding the younger generations into the sort of the bottom of the community as well. So, question to both of you in terms of when it comes to jobs, what have you hired for recently that you know even a couple of years ago might have seen a stretch? Because <clears throat> social media manager is one of the great examples I give. Ten years ago was not even a, a thing. I remember setting up corporates I first worked at out of university i remember setting up their twitter and things and that would never be now left to just like the sort of like the guy who just moved on from intern so what yeah what roles have you hired for recently or are going to be hiring for in the next couple of years do you think um that you wouldn't have envisaged a couple of years ago i've got a team called social disruption right and like you just said the community's getting older. So are we, right? So the reason Ben got off to such a great start at the start of the business was because he was the target consumer. So he was just mm-hmm. essentially scratching your own itch, right? Yeah. And you know, where he spent where he spent his time, he just that's where he focused his marketing because he knew that that's where nineteen year olds were hanging out. Problem is now, us two are sitting here at the dusty age of thirty and twenty nine or whatever it is, right? And it's like we don't get some of the stuff that's going on on TikTok these days because we're not spending our time there. So the social disruption. I'm so team, glad you say that. And all that. <laughs> The social disruption team. <laughs> the social disruption team, like their job is to be the target demographic, right? And understand them and what turns them on and whatever else. We got a proposal, me and Ben did like this week for a for a brand collaboration that I think we would have never dreamed of, right? Mm-hmm. And to us, we look at it and go, What? No. But then they go, hang on, let me show you what's going on on TikTok right now. Show us some trends on there. And we're like, oh wow. Do you know what I mean? So mm. there's there's potential to do something a bit wacky. But they that keeps us on the sort of cutting edge of marketing, as it were. I think saw someone recently saying that. While most companies are, are going to um, Oxford and Cambridge to hire, Gymshark are going to Twitter. And I love that because mm-hmm. it's so true. Um, so, yeah, that's it. That, that, those, those are unique job roles for sure. When it comes to that, obviously, a lot of it is based on uh, the kind of influencer model. That's how big part of how Gymshark really started on the rocket ship that it is. There is sometimes when it comes to government and perhaps the elite media establishments and so on, a bit dismissive of when we see a third of people want to be influencers. When I read it, I think that's such a catch-all term and you were talking we were talking previously beforehand about how you have people that manage your influencers and it's like with every job that is created like that or influencer there can often be a team around them and just explain to us a bit more about what is the the support that you give influencers and so on talk us through that model a bit both of you 
this is, it's sort of stolen from the music industry. The way you have A&Rs in music and they have a really tight relationship with their talent. We do a similar thing here. And I haven't met, unless you have, I haven't met one of the brand that does it that way yet. No, not yet. You tend to, <clears throat> you tend to run into people and they say, oh, I'm the influencer marketing manager from such and such. And you go, oh, brilliant. And they're a department of one and they work with 150 influencers, right? There's no way they can have a really tight relationship there. So while the model is sort of stolen from the music industry or borrowed, I think basically what we're doing is trying to emulate what Ben and the guys did in the early years at scale. Because in the early days... They were, it was just a bunch of mates, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, they were influencers before that term was around, but it was Ben and sort of four other guys hanging out at an event, eating together, lifting together, doing all that kind of stuff. Now, at the scale we are now, obviously we can't keep doing that, but what you can do is try and replicate that model. And now you have, say, one athlete manager to five to eight athletes who can hang out with them, eat with them, train with them, all that kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's interesting. You can, you can range from jobs at Gymshark from people who spend all day, every day, locked in Excel, running reports, right? And they're brilliant at doing that. And they're some of the smartest people I've ever met. And that's what hard work looks like to them versus an athlete manager who is flight to LA. I've got to be in the gym at six training with this person. I've got to eat with them there. We've got to go to a photo shoot. So the, the jobs are disparate, right? Compared to what they do. What you There's an external perception that to work at Gymshark, you have to go to the gym and you have to be this certain type of person. Yeah, there is jobs for those kinds of people, but there's also jobs for data scientists, right? And like uh, product R&D innovation people and stuff like that. So it's a huge range. But yeah, the influencer one is definitely an interesting one just because we've never really met any other brands that do it in the same way that we do. But you're right. It's like when when you meet an influencer now or an, an athlete or whatever, content creator, whatever you want to call them, generally they've got a videographer with them, right? Or a content person or their assistant or like you say, there's athlete managers here. So yeah, for one for one influencer, you're probably creating another five jobs to sort of prop that. that it, it's, a, it's a media outlet on its own, you know, a media platform on its own. So you're probably creating a whole bunch of other jobs around that. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think the government being uninspired by 30% of kids wanting to be influencers is quite short-sighted, to be honest. Mm. And on when it comes to products, R&D and development, Ben, where do you see the future of fitness being? Because it does feel like it's kind of going through this sort of revolutionary moment. We've all been doing, yeah, we've all had time to reflect in the last year in terms of our fitness and so on. What Mm. are the exciting developments that you can tell us about, at least, in terms of what we're seeing in that space? Um, Oh, I need to think about that. Um, I mean, like I said, similar to the strategy I mentioned earlier, we've got like a long term product roadmap, and I think. I th- I'd like to think we're we're pretty clear on on where we think it's going. Like I said, ultimately, from from a apparel and accessories point of view specifically, I think people will continue to want product that's more tailored for them, and I think you'll see more and more of that. You'll already see Gymshark doing a lot a lot more fits, a lot more inclusive in terms of its sizing as well. Um, so I think that's really important. People want to understand where the product has come from more than ever. Um, and a lot more about its sustainability. Um, and I also think people want, I, I guess, a broader connection with the brand and the community that they're working with. So, for example, with Gymshark, like, yes, I wear all the apparel and accessories, but also when I go and deadlift on a Thursday night, I'm using the Gymshark conditioning app. If I want to lurk, l- learn about workouts, I'm talking to the Gymshark athletes and learning from them. It's a lot more of a sort of 360 relationship, 360 product relationship than I think maybe you'd imagine from a more conventional retailer and that's it I, you know you have your daily newsletter as well which mm-hmm. talks about a lot of a lot of things and it's something that you see a lot of people wearing in the gym and so on but there is so much more behind it mm-hmm. and look you just talked a bit about there the kind of Gymshark app and and so on i mean that is you are becoming so much more than what people would just see as the mm-hmm. kind of like t-shirts and shorts right yeah. so just talk us through a few and, more of the things you've well, well that's and that's important to us so if you were to walk into a conventional retailer, they would talk about 
the customers and the spend and how often they visit the website or walk into the store. Whereas at Gymshark, we want to have as much of an understanding about the people that maybe use the conditioning app, don't spend a penny on Gymshark and follow Steve Cook, who's one of our top athletes, for example. We just want as many people as possible to be involved in the Gymshark community and to be improving themselves, both physically and mentally. And listen, if someone then wants to use the Gymshark apparel and accessories to help support them on their journey, then to us, that's a that's a bonus. So I think we look at the community in a different way to what most other brands and retailers will. This may be an impossible question to answer, but how big would you put the Gymshark community at? No, you'll have that. If you if you including the athletes, you're looking yeah, at a massive hundreds number. of millions, including the athletes. We we talk about it in terms of like degrees of connection. Mm. So like a zero degree of connection is directly contacting, talking with us on a day to day basis. Sort of one degree of connection is you know following us on social media. Two degrees of connection is one one of our athletes. So at one degree of connection in terms of people who follow us on social media, it's, it's tens of millions, right? You're in probably sort of 15, 20 million, somewhere around that. When you go to two degrees of connection, where you're talking about the people who follow the Gymshark athletes, inspiration stuff, then you're into hundreds of millions. It's staggering when you think of it. And to be mm. honest, it's not a, there's, there's no hard and fast rule on whether you're in or out either. It's not like there's a, there's not like a blue Peter badge that you all wear and nod, nod at each other, right? It's just a, it's just a combined sort of understanding and appreciation of if, if you're doing something to be a better version of yourself tomorrow, and you and you think Gymshark in any way can help that, whether it's through the T-shirt that you wear, that you sweat in, whether it's the content that you enjoy, whether you use the app to track your your workouts and stuff, you're in. It's just a sort of a commonality like that. So there's no there's no thing like if somebody listens to this thing, right, I want in. Where do I go? Where do I sign up? And where do I get my entry pack? It doesn't really work like that, right? We just think of our community as like Ben said earlier. We think in the future, people want to know more about brands. I think when when they Gen Z spend in 2021, they don't just buy the products. They, they vote with their pounds. I mean, and they want to know everything about it. The fact that Ben goes on his YouTube channel and shows everything we do, shows the shareholding at the company, right? How many companies have you spent with in the past week where you could you could know who all the shareholders are, look them up online, you know what I mean, see where they, what they're doing on the weekend on their Instagram page, any of that. Normally, boards and shareholders and all that stuff are hidden behind some misty, you know, PR statements and whatever else. Mm. Whereas, like, he's, like, jarringly transparent with the way he, he does things personally, right? Which then plays out at the company as well. But like you said, you, you could literally, before you decide... Are, are these guys a good company? You could look into every single human behind the business because we're all extremely visible. Do you know what I mean? And have a look at our personal ethics and see if it's something you align yourself with. If you do, then make your purchase and you're in. But I think that's important to Gen Z at the minute. And we're, we're doing as much as we can to just try and give them more and more info every single day. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that recently with your, you've really slimmed down in terms of the packages that you deliver and so on. Right mm-hmm. now, it's, a, it's almost like, yeah, I got a load of stuff delivered the other day and it's like, it's tiny it's, mm-hmm. uh, what it comes in now. Where do you think that... Gen Z is is heading in that because that is it's a challenge in terms of I think of this now like as a new parent right in terms of purchasing decisions and so on end up congratulations being... by the way. <laughs> thank you but it's like it ends up being so you know you end up making decisions based on speed and agility mm-hmm. and so on much more do you think that will change or are we seeing a proper kind of shift change in attitudes towards consumerism um, I mean, things are getting quicker, aren't they? I mean, a few a few years ago, for something to arrive in the UK in two or three days wasn't the end of the world. Now I feel like if it's not next day, then people aren't happy at all. But I don't think there's a battle between sort of sustainability and speed. I, think, I still think you can do speed sustainably. But you're right, the Gen Z are so much more conscious about the impact that everything has on the envi- in the environment and from a societal perspective, as are we. So I think that's really important for brands to consider going forward. And when it comes to, I just want to touch on, I know we said we talk about the future, but one point that I think is interesting that hasn't been brought out much um, about your your story is how much of the company that you've been able to hold on to. And you mm-hmm. referenced it earlier in terms of, you know, you've had offers from 
channel places which would allow you to kind of double revenues mm -hmm. and you've stayed tight agile flexible with it you must have had so many offers for investment at some point mm -hmm. and there is definitely yeah we're going through this entrepreneurial revolution in the uk we're doing really well at it but there is this element of lionizing the sort of venture backs businesses yeah. and so on it becomes a shortcut for people to say that they're on their way and say you know we've raised x amount from so on at such and such valuation mm -hmm. yeah you'd never done that and i think that is part of the reason why perhaps you haven't come across radars and so on as much as yeah. well being based in in birmingham and just your reflections on that i would love to to hear and your advice for younger entrepreneurs because you funded this all throughout your yourself and and the money and the cash revenues that you'd made yeah and that isn't something that's talked about enough and i would just love for your reflections on that yeah i mean well everything that you see today is the snowball effect of the three pound 90 i earned at pizza hut when i was 18 um and i think gymshark is almost like a bit of a super unicorn in that that respect because you're right we've gotten two unicorn status without any borrowing or funding or anything like that that's because that's half luck and half skill so it's hard it's luck because we sell products that are higher margin and you know the stars aligned in terms of so many more people being into fitness nowadays people being more comfortable buying from online uh, direct to consumer online brands all of the stars had to align for that to happen but equally we have been really careful and we built a really solid business and and brand for that matter and it's because we look at everything through the lens of we want to build a 100 200 300 year brand like i'm so inspired by some of the really old school british businesses and like you know there's brands like Burberry or even more locally sort of Jaguar Land Rover and, and companies like that to us are so inspiring so we're really Cad Cadbury's as well Cadbury exactly yeah down the road so those old school brands that have lasted across generations are are the inspiration for us so I think we're sort of cautious with the decisions that we make um, when it comes to things like that yeah you're going to run this company or be the majority um, shareholder in it for mm -hmm. 30 40 plus years yeah. I mean it's quite remarkable to to think of that because a lot of those companies you have mentioned have gone through change of ownerships at various points and you know i, I know that you're not going to do just the way that you speak about it and so on and it's clear that you want it to become part of the of the fabric of the not just the local community but a global community yeah. as well and what i mean cadbury as well what it did for the local area is incredible it's, right yeah what are your sort of plans for that i mean you, you i've spent the morning at the site here and it's amazing like how quickly you're growing and expanding mm -hmm. what are your thoughts in terms of being that kind of yeah we talk about esg a lot mm -hmm. and i often think there's sort of a, a c missing from that phrase mm -hmm. um which is so important to hear you guys talk about what are your thoughts and plans for it I mean, listen, we want to bring as much as we can, not only to the West Midlands, but to the UK as well. So when you when we're smaller, we were sort of like, it was super cool, the fact that we would be able to hire people, you know, that would move maybe from London or Manchester and come here. Now we're hiring so many international people. And I think that's really great. I think it helps the economy. I think it helps the local area. I mean, it's not purely down to us, but this um, industrial estate by Valley that we sit on now, I mean, it pretty much didn't exist five, ten years ago. The construction and development has been amazing. Um, I mean, anyone that goes into places like central Birmingham now, it's a completely different place. And that's really cool to be at the to be at the heart of. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it's super important to us. We're developing people in the area. I also think it was it was really cool because 
as we were growing, it was fascinating just how many super smart people there are in this area. There's always been a bit of a brain drain from the West Midlands where people would sort of always get sucked into London. And I'm really proud of the fact that now we're giving people the opportunity to have an, an amazing workspace, you know, in the West Midlands. I went to the University of Birmingham, as you know, graduated mm-hmm. 2009. And it has always been a reflection of mine being in the second city that mm-hmm. no one really made the case to me to kind of stay. stay. Yeah. Which I think is a real shame. And it was always something that I was going to go to London. Now, look, that's partly because I was in politics and that was inevitably where some of the um, the action was at. And it is, I mean, again, it's different now with some of the West Midlands combined authority mayorship and so on. What work do you do in terms of, you know, connecting with other people in the area? Because now you are, you know, not only are you an icon for other for the whole of British entrepreneurs, but that local ecosystem as well is so important. What work do you do do in terms of trying to support other Birmingham entrepreneurs? So, I mean, we do, I mean, I did a video not long ago, actually, and it was was more sort of UK focused, but it's around supporting entrepreneurs. So, you know, if you've got any ideas, get in touch. We open pre-COVID, we had sort of, what's it called? The local, uh, yeah, incubator. So we had, again, we do talk to a lot of local businesses, lots lots of young entrepreneurs. Funding office space and stuff for people in Birmingham who we thought were, you know, had potential good business ideas up in Aston. We'd pay for their office for about a year or something like yeah, that. And help, and help support their ideas. Yeah. Um, opening, opening up this place as well. So a lot of local schools will come in. And again, that's a thing. So growing up around here, London was always like, the area where almost things happened, whereas it's so cool to be able to bring local kids here and see that you can create something special and unique locally as well. I mean, we support the local NHS. We've got an incredible relationship with the Birmingham uh, Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospitals as well, and that's really important to us. Yeah, I mean, we, we do everything we can, not only to support the local sort of Birmingham, West Midlands areas, but as well the UK. It's, this is quite small, but during during lockdown, there was there was staff who literally couldn't do their job for one reason or another because of lockdown, right? Now, like like I mentioned earlier, some businesses were furloughing and stuff like that if they physically couldn't do their job. But it didn't seem right to us that we'd furlough anybody because, you know, our numbers were still good. So we had those guys working for... So obviously, we were still paying their salary and whatever else, but we had them working for Birmingham Women and Children's Hospital, delivering prescriptions around the UK. We had some people going there in the morning, driving to Kent to drop off some paracetamol or whatever it was, yeah. and then bringing it back. So wherever we can... Albeit it's sort of it's small in places. We do try and do as much as we can for the local area. You're a, you're a, like personally a patron for those guys now, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a patron at Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital, which is amazing. It was something that was to be honest, I wasn't expecting it at all. And then they asked me probably about four to six weeks ago. So and having so my mum worked in the NHS, mm-hmm. you know, my entire life. So to be able to give that little bit back to the local Birmingham hospitals has been really important to me as well. Stuff like that, I feel like if you're part of the, the business elite, like you mentioned earlier, and you move in those circles and you create a big business, it's almost like no surprise. But when a lot of the people here have come from working class backgrounds, if it wasn't for what Birmingham offers, you know, the welfare state, the NHS, free education, all that kind of stuff, none of us would be sitting here today. Do you know what I mean? Like Ben personally. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it was not like it was this crazy privileged upbringing, which has, has led on to all this stuff. So it only kind of feels right now that we do as much as possible to try and give back to the same, you know, what I mean, services that sort of helped us get to where we are. And how much do you think, you know, class and things plays a role in, in kind of what drives you? I was talking to Don McGregor, who we've had on the podcast the other day, and he was talking about being from working class means that, you know, in some ways you've got less to lose and all to prove. Mm-hmm. And it just, that stuck with me, you know, a, a great deal in, in that regard. And, you know, it is something as British people we probably talk about and reflect on too much, but it would be, you know, do you think that's kind of spurred you on? Um 
possibly, to be honest. I, I've never really thought too much into it. The, I'll never forget the first time where Gymshark started to do well and I started to speak to people that were in maybe more of an upper class. I started to realise, oh, wow, these guys have significantly better financial education than anyone I've ever met. And I didn't know if that was a schooling thing or a family thing. But to be honest, it's it's not something I think about regularly. I mean, my role models growing up were my parents and my grandparents, and they were all incredibly hardworking. Like my mum worked in the NHS and she would go and do nights and then come home and drop us off at school, sleep in the day and all that sort of stuff. So it's not something that I think about too regularly, but I think on reflection, having grown up around such a, an amazing group of hardworking people, it's definitely had a big impact on, on me as I think pretty much everyone that's from around here. I think it, looking at you from the outside, I think it impacts you subconsciously more than consciously. Yeah. I think that's why he's never started go, going down to London and hanging out with the, the business elite or the, the known entrepreneurs that you would think of. Like you said, he walked in that day and didn't really know anyone. It's because I don't think you've ever aspired to. I think yeah. you're comfortable around working class people. Yeah. So you naturally sort of gravitate towards that. But equally, I think that's what's kept us and Ben personally with the blinkers on in our lane, coming back to Birmingham and just working hard. Because the second you start hanging out and it's all networking events and you're doing that, all the time you're doing that stuff, you're not concentrating on the mission almost, you know? Mm. Um. So I think that's what's kept us quite sort of uh, uh, blinkered if you like in, in, in relentless on the mission yeah but, I remember as well this is su super minor well not super minor but it, well, it didn't directly affect us because my parents didn't work there but when we were kids not far up the road from us in Longbridge is where sort of Rover MG were and then when that whole business went bankrupt there was like so many people that you knew that lost their jobs and I remember seeing the impact that that had sort of locally and even now like you can drive past where the old factories were and they still haven't filled it in it's still like you drive and you just see like emptiness. They've started to put things on, which is great to see. I remember that having a massive impact as well. And, and things like that, it really makes you want to do more for the local area and, you know, try and give back. Because again, like there's people on the road that lost their jobs and having to see that definitely impacts you in a way. When talking to people about Gymshark over the last few weeks, it's been interesting just how many people associate you now with that brand. That is a big responsibility, becoming a business personality similar to Branson, Peter Jones and Lord Sugar. You've obviously had a taste of it doing those PM councils and so on, but it's a very important role. How do you feel about that? Yeah, um, so I reluctantly got into it. So I didn't, I, everything I took, videos, pictures, everything of the Gymshark story as we went along, and I didn't ever put it out there mm. until we did a world tour a few years ago, and there was a lad in Dublin who was doing a, uh, like a university um, essay on Gymshark, and he just said, hey, I would love it if, he, I've been trying to find out about the company, and I would just love it if you could record a video that basically talked about the Gymshark story. How did it start? What was the deal? How did you get to where you were? And people had asked me in the past to do this, and for whatever reason, I, I sort of listened to this guy, and I said, yep, yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll do the video, and we flew home. About a month later, I recorded the video. I had to record two or three of them because I just was so terrible on camera and just recorded the video of this is how I started Gymshark. And the ambition was I'm going to do this one video and I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to sat satisfy this lad that's doing his, his, um, his uni university course and I'll leave it there. And the reaction was so overwhelmingly positive. I think that's on multi-million views now. I just ended up sticking with it and carrying on carrying on and doing it so I sort of reluctantly got in, into it if I'm honest and then even now I must admit outside of the sort of day-to-day -day of Gymshark it is one of the most cool and exciting things I get to do because I get to meet so many cool people um there are people that ha have businesses that I'll jump on calls with here and there and I'll help support them um and I just find it really enjoyable if I'm honest because 
it's nice for me to offer to other people what I didn't have. Um, and I didn't have it because there wasn't that many local businesses in the sort of area we grew up that were doing anything similar. And because we were, you know, in many ways, we were pioneering. And there's so many things that I wish I'd have done in the early days sooner that would actually have allowed Gymshark to grow even more quickly. So if I can have like a half an hour call with someone here and there and help them not make a mistake, then I think that's that's really powerful and that's important to me. I know it's actually something that you, you know, despite building off a lot of social media and so on, it is something that you've only kind of taken to actually in the kind of last mm. five or six years, which I think surprises, you know, some people when they find out about that because it's so synonymous now with the brand they mm-hmm. associate with you. And I was also interested in terms of this, like the way that you, you've both changed because as Noel indicated earlier, I've been going through all your old kind of socials this week and so on. Oh, God. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> um and your own kind of fitness journeys as well, because you, know, you started off kind of in the powerlifting side of things mm-hmm. and you're both really big guys and you've kind of like slimmed down on that a lot now. And I just think it's interesting because I think it's really important to talk about this. And I think it's been interesting that the prime minister kind of in the last year has been saying, look, you know, I've been overweight and so on. And actually kind of to a certain degree, men talking about this stuff is not something that we've seen much of before mm. and so I was interested in that and I also um, heard that you've been doing a bit more running in lockdown than you've mm-hmm. ever done before and so just the way that that fitness is evolving and that journey and what your thoughts are on on the way that fitness is going but also your own journeys with it I mean personally as a as a teenager all I wanted to do was bodybuilding so I was just weights 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 and to be fair I'll still do that you know four or five times a week that that is my sort of core passion I do think I don't know if this is a covid thing or me getting an old, older thing but I do now really value having like a good cardiovascular system and sort of got into running if I'm honest just because there wasn't too much else to do during lockdown yeah. um that's a you get older thing yeah. for sure I think I, but I think more people are doing it and I mm. think and to be fair I think that's why things like crossfit are doing so mm-hmm. well because people want to be like fit and healthy in like uh yeah exactly that functionally fit so i think that is a, a bit of a trend but the other thing is there's so many different facets of fitness now before it was just you're a gym guy whereas now are you a bodybuilder a powerlifter a crossfitter mm. a runner you know all these different things and i think that's emerging in the fitness world now a lot more it's becoming part of people's identity as well kind mm. of explaining that and um, you know we all have multifaceted identities as well and it's just you know interesting depending on the different community that you're you're speaking to about that. Um, what are your reflections on that, Noel? I mean, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm a bit, bit, I felt Ben glance at the side of my head when, it, when you went, you know, you're both really big guys and I thought, am I? <laughs> but anyway, no, I, I, I was. There was a point, you may have seen this picture or not, there's a picture of me and Ricky Hatton somewhere at an event and Ricky Hatton famously, in between fights, got out of shape and in the photo, I'm in the worst shape out of the two of us, <laughs> which is interesting. So I was a big guy like that, but then, yeah, I think I got I got healthier through like combat stuff. I never really, I'm like, a, I bite my nails like crazy, right? Because I'm like a constant, I can't, a doctor called me high function or hyperactive or something like that. I have to be doing something constantly. So even sitting here, not looking at my phone is killing me. Um, so for the, but Ben was into bodybuilding. I could never get into it because I'd lie on a bench, push weights up and down and think, is this it? I'm so bored. And it was only when one of my friends took me to an amateur boxing club. And if I didn't concentrate, I got punched in the face. I thought, oh, this is quite good for me. And I got into MMA and jiu-jitsu and stuff like that. And then I found that, especially in jiu-jitsu, which is like, for those who don't know, the stuff that you see them doing in the UFC when they're on the ground, choking each other out and whatever, that's it. The great thing about that is I have, like, I've, I figured out early on I had a problem with ego like I had like it, it would like hold me back in places mm. jiu-jitsu is so great because you get you touch hands on the mats with this guy you've never met before and he's 60 kilograms and he's 17 years old and he 
mangles you within an inch of your life and makes you tap out. And you, and the like, if this wasn't a a controlled sport, essentially that's you being able to kill me. You could have choked me yeah. within an inch of my life there, and I have to tap. And that tap is signifying like you could have killed me then if you wanted to. So getting handled by these like really small guys and whatever else all the time instills, I think, these values of like this like white belt mentality. In other words, there's always something to be learned. Do you know what I mean? So even yeah. and I think it then I think there's Joe Rogan talks about this a lot. I think there's um the way that plays out then in business is yeah, just because you've got a fancy job title and you you know you you might have a car parking space at the front or a corner office we have none of those things by the way but some people do um doesn't mean that you can't learn from the 19 year old intern do you know what i mean and i think some of the most valuable things we've done at this mm. business in the past two years have been thanks to young people who you know in a traditional business their voice isn't heard whereas here that sort of white belt mentality plays out and it's like no you can learn from absolutely everyone do you know what i mean so i think fitness is kind of i think that's the way it's sort of taking shape for me but yeah fitness for me is either on or off ben i'll tell you this i'm either <laughs> cutting dieting hard and i've got abs and i'm running every night and all that kind of stuff or i'm massively off the wagon <laughs> and you'll catch me in tesco with four bags of haribo just trying to sneak <laughs> out so yeah I'm, I'm nowhere near as consistent as ben is i did notice there was a good s- snack selection in the uh, refuel canteen yes um just uh, so coming into the final bits of it the what would your message be to the the government in this whole kind of building back better side of things mm-hmm. yeah what is it that we can do because we are at this proper post-generational uh, moment with the with the uk and the globe frankly so what would your advice be to the prime minister and chancellor Ooh. Well, you, that's a, one hell of a way to put us on the spot. That's a big question. <laughs> um, I, I, honestly, I haven't got a clue. I'm not well educated enough to comment. Oh, that is the one thing. Politicians answer. Okay, I tell you, politicians question and a politician's answer. The, uh, what I would say from a gut instinct point of view is, and I need to do the research, but invest in what's for tomorrow. So at the moment, you're seeing sort of the data fields absolutely flying. Digitization of some of the old clunky businesses. We know for a fact that. 5G and internet and online is, is going to power tomorrow. So I think we need to invest in all of those things. I would also invest more education around, well, financial education for youngsters. I think I mentioned earlier, as as Gymshark started to grow, that was something that I was shocked by because I just didn't know it was a thing. And ultimately, you want to encourage as many people to start businesses as possible. Now, I don't necessarily think you need to do that with money i don't think you throw money at the problem because i think if you throw money at something you'll just get more of what you've already got but i think there needs to be a step change in terms of allowing people to fail and just supporting people on their ideas cultural shift in that yeah i think a cultural shift and there's just little things right so having spent a lot of time in the states it's like they're so much more optimistic about sort of like maybe starting a business than than people are here it's it feels a little bit like here sometimes people will talk about the reasons why not rather than why you should and i do think that I think that needs to change. I mean, I speak a lot about it, right? Gymshark was the seventh website that I'd made and the previous six failed miserably. Um, but you took something from each of those failures which allowed exactly. you to kind of make I think some... pe- But people need to know about that and people need to talk about that and that's something I'm going to make sure that we talk a lot more about is our failures. Um, so yeah, it would be about supporting and trying investing in tomorrow. Someone told me something. I don't know if I was chatting to you about it a while ago, Jimmy, but someone told me that the Industrial Revolution particularly exploded in the West Midlands because the West Midlands was the place that was best equipped for it. California is the place where the sort of internet revolution has been built and computers and so on, personal computing, because it's Silicon Valley and it's where a lot of the silicon chips were made and it was best equipped for what was to come. So if I was in the government, I'd be doing the research into what's to come and making sure that we are the best equipped for that. Create like fertile ground. Yeah. And where do you think 
that that is you know going to be happening over the next 20 years i mean like the, the nike story is interesting right in terms mm-hmm. of what phil knight did in terms of going to japan right because that is where the innovation was happening in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. that wouldn't be it i mean pre-covid you were doing 50 flights a year around the world mm-hmm. where's one of the most exciting places you visited geographically where's the, one of the most exciting places Oh, this is going to be such a, a crap answer, but I still think, I always, me and Noel talk about it a lot, the most inspiring place in the world to me is London. Number one is London, number two is New York. I think they're so cool because it's such a an incredibly diverse and it's just such an impressive place to be and it's got such incredible history and culture, but you also feel like you're at the centre of the world when you're in one of those cities. So if you said to me right now, you need to disappear to anywhere in the world for inspiration and like a glance as to what tomorrow might look like, I really do think London will be that place. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a, a geo. Like I think mm. it was before. You like where would you go next to start your business? I wouldn't go to anywhere. But the, the place I'd go to would be the internet. Mm. <laughs> I think. I think that in previous years, yeah, there was there was these real hard borders between countries, and you had to fly places to get things done. But I think the internet just melted the borders away. Do you know what I mean? And now, if I was if it was a, if I was trying to you know again like ben said make the most let's say it was my kid on my pet project and i was going to try and make him an entrepreneur it would be spend all your time on the internet hang mm-hmm. out in forums read tweets read instagram comments immerse yourself in the culture of the internet forget the culture of new york or london mm-hmm. or whatever else hang out on the internet that's why that's why ben's sitting here do, do, doing what he's done it's not because i don't ben didn't start his business in the uk mm-hmm. like that's the that's why he doesn't know anybody at downing street ben mm-hmm. started his business on the internet walk around shopify and ben is a king do you know what i mean yeah yeah Walking around Downing Street, and it's like, who's this kid who printed some T-shirts and delivered pizza? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think that was a joke, but like, you know, but it's. I, I will come on to information sources almost in a moment, but just quickly on that, we, like, we do have a, a section called ducking disasters, and you kind of refer to it. We've all made the autocorrect on iPhone and whatever. Can you think of one particularly from the early days, or even recent, right, of mm. where you did something and you've just thought, my God, that went badly wrong. I'm never doing that again. Oh God. I think that happens pretty much every day. Yeah, all this morning. Oh, God. Well, There's a podcast with this guy called Jimmy Mac. Yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do remember, so this is going back a, a fair old way now. So we did, this is typical Gymshark fashion. We did, and I think I'm, I'm to blame for this, if I'm honest. We did an event and it went really well. Um, it was one of the first events that we did. And I think we did another one and it went incredibly well. And then we were like, okay, if we've done one event really well, let's do 10 of the things. And we spent everything we had on all of these different events around the world. And we, we did the UK again in Birmingham, we did Germany, we did Ohio, California, Australia. And we'd also booked on to do uh, an, an expo in India as well. And we'd completely and utterly just bitten off more than we could chew. We couldn't afford it. We didn't have the time. We didn't just understand how to approach it at, at, at all. And we ended up having to cancel out of that event. And that was one where I thought, oh God, we'd definitely bitten off more than we could chew there in terms of just oversubscribing ourselves to far too many events. Um, And then again, in the early days, there was a lot of times where we did certainly just, I guess, take some very, very large risks and we were super fortunate that they came off. But like you said earlier about the six websites that you started or whatever it was before, every one of them informs something else. Mm. So like, I've got a list of fuck ups as long as my arm I could tell you, but I wouldn't go back and correct them. I wouldn't duck them. Do you know what I mean? Because they then informed the strategy mm-hmm. going forward and sharpened our tool and got us better at what we do now. Do you know what I mean? And people always say like, Jim Shark always seems to be able to get it right. No, we don't. We get it wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. But we're like gamblers. You only find out about the wins. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like yeah. we don't tell you about all the times we lost. There's there's ten things we've tried. Oh, Jim Shark's so great on TikTok. Yeah, how did, how did you do that? How have you got this like mystic ball of social media? We haven't. We tried seven other social media platforms that we thought were going to be the next big thing, and none of them worked. Mm-hmm. And we wasted all that time. But when one thing does work pays dividends 10 times over and all of a sudden all those 10 things you tried before didn't really matter you know? mm. yeah 
So like, don't duck the disasters, basically. Yeah, exactly. No, a bit like uh, you and I meeting on Clubhouse in terms of trying to find the next big thing. Um, <laughs> just finally then, so you mentioned information sources there. I think it's really interesting in a world now where so much more information is thrown at. You know, when I was at um, school, university, like The Economist was a gateway to a lot of business and kind of like economics news. Mm. Where now do you get your information from? And also, have you got a book that you, like, I know you've both become quite big readers, which isn't something that at the start of the Gymshark journey you, you did necessarily. Is there a book you particularly recommend? Oh, can people? I admit something? You I don't read. think that's true. What? I don't think we're both big readers. I think I've read a small handful of books and I just talk about them all the time. Yeah. But I, but, I think <laughs> but I think it's really respected in the world if you say, yeah, I'm a big reader and I really like this book. But if we're completely honest, neither of us are yeah, big readers. I, I know we're not. The, when, as soon as you started that sentence, the first three places I thought is YouTube, LinkedIn and Reddit. Do you know, and I went to... I went to Archbishop of Banterbury. Genuinely, yeah. <laughs> I'm just bait. Like these, these like Instagram pages that you know gossip and whatnot. Like that's where I keep up with like cultural events. Hundred percent. That's how I know what's going on with Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury at the moment. It's through these like Instagram meme pages and stuff like that. But I think most people on a podcast like this wouldn't admit that, and they go, "Yeah, you know, Simon Sinek. You know, start with why I'm a big proponent of that." But, like we're not hundred percent. Like you, you said to me recently that people always reference Shoe Dog to you, and you haven't read it all the way yeah. through. The first chapter or whatever it is, uh, but I, I, I think it's I think it's hard for people to admit that. But if if we're being honest, that's that's the, yeah, my, uh, that's my, the truth. My problem is, is I have to like proper like love the book, yeah. and then I read through it. And there, there's been a handful that have been amazing, but there's so there's been let's say in the last couple of years five books that I've just thought were absolutely brilliant. But there's been about twenty that I've picked up, and within three pages I've been like, no, this is not for me. Yeah. So I just go back and but I like I literally every single day, first thing in the morning, every time I'm eating breakfast, driving to work, I'm listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, and they're almost always sort of educational. All right, okay. So what are the best YouTube channels? And I don't think it, I, I don't think people listening to podcasts like this, right, because Ben just said it there, right, that he listens to podcasts, and that's, yeah. that's the information flow. And I do, mm -hmm. you know, the whole point of this podcast is trying to kind of disseminate the social capital that I've built up, getting to meet people like you, and trying to put it out there to mm -hmm. a wider audience, and realising that jobs of the future, like, are so varied, mm -hmm. and you can... Well, that's yeah. why I said it as well, because I don't want anybody listening, anybody, any budding 16-year-old to think, oh, I, I have to read the legacy book about the All Blacks, because mm. there's so many of these, like, clickbait videos out there saying, like, CEOs get up at 5 a.m. and they read this book every day yeah. and they do an hour worth of mm. running, and it's not true. Like, it's, it's just it just sounds good. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, like, the the new Alan Sugar has been sort of sits here as like doesn't do that stuff. Do you know what I mean? So if if you are sitting there thinking, well, I get most of my stuff from Instagram or from YouTube or from Twitter, no problem because there are people who've quote unquote made it who do the exact same thing. Yeah. But to give you a question, because I know you're looking for an actual recommendation, how I built this by Guy Raz yeah. is unbelievable, like genuinely unbelievable. Like I think he's like what you just said, disseminating that social capital. I think he's doing the exact same thing and being able to hear from the founder, Brian Chesky from Airbnb about how that, what that journey was like. That's Ooh, crazy. Yeah. That's an insight that like even I get super excited about Kevin from Instagram, right? The, the story between him and his girlfriend where she was annoyed saying, oh, our friend Bobby, his photos look really good. And he's like, well, he's a photographer. He puts filters and stuff on. She's like, I wish I could put filters on. Instagram. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what, what a story to be able to get that close to. You feel like you're sitting in a room listening to him. So yeah, how I built this by Guy Raz, and then I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Joe Rogan's podcast. Where I think he gets some really mm. interesting people on there. It is. I mean, that that story is the what changed Airbnb was them getting professional photographers. Mm -hmm. That changed that whole game because they struggled for a long time mm -hmm. as well. And, and the uh, the cereal. Do you know? So you hear about the cereal? Yeah, the Ob Obama Rose. <laughs> how good is that? <laughs> and the McCainos. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 
I've now Airbnb and what was the other one that we just uh, Instagram Instagram yeah and the filters for Instagram yeah, yeah. that that yeah. changed it all is there a moment with Gymshark I think you know you put it down to the expo that you kind of went to that mm. was the sort of moment that you know that, changed everything that was just the culmination of everything we'd done previously so that's where we were like we realised that people other people followed the YouTubers because at the time Matt had the most followers on YouTube and he had about 20,000 subscribers which in today's numbers mm. is you know it's not a lot really Matt was one of the first influencers for us yeah and that it was at that point where we were like oh wow so other people want to speak to these people too other people are interested in the product and there's a load of other people that lift because we you just live in your own little world right we went to the same gym every day um so you don't really see much outside of that and that was the point where we we realized that um, we were onto something special and unique. Yeah. Well, look, I cannot wait to see the rest of the, the story. And thank you so much for both giving up time to explain what it is, because I believe that you're building a great global brand here. And it's amazing to kind of share the story and where people can, can benefit from it and hopefully come and work here one day as well. Absolutely. Thank Thanks you for you. having us. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs disrupting industries from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak, and thanks to George Dick Cleland for the artwork. Tom Fordyce, I never would have met you if it hadn't been for we didn't start the fire. Katie Puckley, I thought I didn't want to learn anymore. I was wrong. And you know why we're learning so much? Oh man, that's a tough this one. This is a really interesting story. In 1949, 1950, the communist troops came to my province. Because this is the best history podcast you've ever listened to in your entire life? What? what? They shot him live in front of the whole village. My mouth is just hanging open. I can't believe this. And yes, it's sort of based on Billy Joel's song, but it's a history podcast. It tells us all the reasons why the world today is as it is, but it's more. I killed a cactus <laughs> recently. My connection to Marilyn. Walter Winchell. Don't you love Brando? If there was a movie, it was just Brando's face. I'd put it on in the background all day. I'd be perfectly happy. Search for We Didn't Start the Fire. We'll wait for you.